All right. For those of you who haven't met me, my name's Andy. Uh, I'm also from North America. So Michael is from Canada, and I'm from South Canada uh, or the United States, whichever way you want to think of it. It's fine by me. Um, <clears throat> Canada vastly more popular in most parts of New Zealand, so I'll just claim it like it's mine. I'm from South Canada. Uh, <laughs> um, my wife and I uh, live in One Tree Hill. We have two rather small children. When I left uh, them, my two-year-old was in her chair screaming and protesting dinner, and my wife was feeding our three-month-old, and she looked at me and was like, have a good time. And I said, sorry. <laughs> um, a, stage of, a stage of life. Um, this morning we're looking at just a tremendous passage. Uh, I love this rhythm we have at uh, EV Morning Church and Uni Church EV, where between series that we're doing, we take these holiday opportunities, uh, school holidays for non-uni, because New Zealand can't get all in sync, I don't think. That's fine. Um, and, and we take this opportunity to either answer key questions or address key issues, or like we're doing tonight, um, to take a key passage of the Bible and let's try and sit under it and hear it for ourselves. Um, and what we're looking at tonight is nothing short than the essential heart of the entire Bible. Uh, it's the essential heart, as Dave was saying, of what we're about at Uni Church EV. Um, with that in mind, I would like to offer and invite you guys uh, to examine what I'm saying. Uh, in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul goes to a town named Berea. And he's in one of these cities along, along his journeys. And he, the author of Acts, Luke, gives us this insight into the heart of the Berean Jews um, that Paul's ministering to. He says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Paul just got chased out of Thessalonica for proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue. Uh, for they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily, to see if these things were so. So they had this rhythm where Paul would open the scroll, and I like to, you know, give this picture. He's scrolling through the passages and, and proclaiming what they say about Jesus, and then he stops teaching. And what happens is some level of dialogue where the, the Berean Jews sort of flip through and pass through all these scrolls to wrestle with, is this what it actually means? Is this what it's really saying? So I invite you guys, uh, ponder what I'm putting before you. Read Isaiah 52 and 53 for yourself. Wrestle with it. Study with it. Dialogue with it with your friends. And come to the conclusions for yourselves. My goal today, and each time I stand and proclaim the Bible, is not just to present content, but hopefully to help you guys wrestle with that for yourself. Well, introductory comments aside... <laughs> We find ourselves this morning uh, in the book of Isaiah. What we've, what we've just heard, what Michael read, uh, is a song. Uh, it sits in your, in your Bibles in sort of a unique poetic format, and I think that strikes our, our Western minds uh, a little strange. Uh, we're kind of, as a culture, geared towards Aristotelian kind of rectilinear logic, like you see in the book of Romans or Galatians or Ephesians, where it's sort of, here's a point that flows directly onto this point that flows directly onto this point, and, and we read that, and I think most of the time we can follow the logic. We enter a book like Isaiah, and it's sort of, hey, here's a poem, and here's another poem, and here's a prophecy, and here's a story, and that's a history, and here's this, and here's that, and we get real confused real quick. Uh, at least I'll be honest and say it's real easy for me to. It's because Isaiah is laid out for a Hebrew mind, 
and the way that Hebrew logic flowed. So here's what the book of Isaiah does. Isaiah introduces a topic, chapters 1 and 2, and he walks over it, and then he backs up, and he hits the same topic from a different angle, chapters 2 through 5. He backs up, he hits it again, 6 through 12. He hits it again, 17 to 28. He hits it again and again and again. And so where we find ourselves in Isaiah 53 is sort of the end of one of these kind of kicking of the dead horse so that by the time we read the entire book of Isaiah, we've sort of seen one topic from just a vast number of angles. And what what he's presenting to us today is this topic of exile and how will the people come back from exile. All throughout Isaiah, it's been this message that a hardening has come upon Israel that though they see, they don't really see. And though they can hear, they're deaf. And though they're, they're living and breathing, they're not really. This hardening has come upon them. And they've become exiled from God. And Isaiah's been telling them time and again, exile physically is coming as well. Babylon, Assyria, they're at the doorstep. They're coming for you. And what we're looking at is an expansion of that, where Isaiah's saying, this is how you come home. Not just physically, but from your true exile, from God himself, returning from our sin, which has separated us from God. We begin with the words, Behold my servant. In this section, from chapter 38 all the way to 55, this sort of backup and run over of the topic, Isaiah has introduced this this servant. Uh, This is the fourth servant song, as it's referred to. And, And what Isaiah is doing as he's presenting the one that will bring about the return from exile. When he first comes onto the scene in Isaiah 42, we see the servant is called Israel. Behold, Israel, you are my servant. It's something along those lines. Behold, my servant, Israel, da-da-da-da-da. And so we're thinking, okay, Israel's going to deliver itself. That's really weird for the Bible, but that's that's what's going to happen. That's what's happening. But then as it progresses, we see actually Israel can't deliver itself because it's fallen and in need of deliverance itself. So um, so it goes on and on and on. The servant must be somebody other than Israel. But we have to wrestle with, who is this servant? And my, my hope and my heart for tonight is that I want Isaiah to have his say in the matter. Uh, the New Testament uses this passage all over the place. But what I want today is to really wrestle with what Isaiah himself is saying and to come to a conclusion from that. Without flipping through a lot of passages uh, in this part of Isaiah, I'd like us to key in on a few words from the beginning. So verse 13, Isaiah 52, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. High and lifted up or high and lofty. This is kind of a common phrase for Isaiah, referring exclusively to God himself. Uh, notice Isaiah 6.1 and Isaiah 57.15. Isaiah 6.1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah sort of walks into the temple and stumbles upon God himself, high and lifted up. Isaiah 57.15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. When we read, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, at the very least, in the book of Isaiah, we have to be saying it's somebody that on on level with God, 
on some, on some level is equal with God. But probably a more straightforward take would be to say we're seeing God himself or somebody that embodies the fullness of God and is worthy of the title of God, high and lifted up. So we can't be talking about Israel because Israel Israel's never talked about in these ways. We have to be talking about someone else. One other phrase here, uh, just from Isaiah fifty-two fifteen: So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. This, this word sprinkling, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a word throughout the Old Testament, uh, exclusively done by the high priest. Uh, the king does it in a couple different situations, but almost exclusively to sprinkle is to sprinkle the blood or the offering of a sacrifice on behalf of the people to make atonement. So shall he sprinkle many nations. So the high priest sort of goes through this huge ritual where he has to put on certain garments, perform certain washings, do certain things, do a sacrifice in this way, and then he walks into the presence of God and he sprinkles blood on the altar from the sacrifice on behalf of the people. So here we see not really a normal high priest because no high priest was ever authorized to sprinkle on behalf of the nations. High priests were only ever authorized to sprinkle on behalf of the people who had come with sacrifice. But here we see this super high priest (laughs) uh, with authority to even sprinkle or make atonement for the nations themselves. The testimony of these two words and the Bible at large is that this passage can only be speaking of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the one who's high and lifted up and in his fullness is God himself. The one who as a super high priest makes atonement and sprinkles for the world. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But in the truest sense, this interpretation of seeing, seeing this as Jesus fits the entire gamut of how the servants referred to in Isaiah 38 through 55. Because Jesus sits on the throne of David. He's the king. And a king can act on behalf of his people. In, in reality, a king represents his people. So the king can stand and say, I am Israel. And at the same time, stand apart from Israel and say, I will rescue Israel. The king can do all of these things. When we're looking at, um, at this whole passage, Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, we're seeing sort of one big poem. And these first three verses, 52, 13 to 15, kind of offer as an introduction. And it's common in Hebrew poetry uh, for the kind of the entire meaning of what's going to be in the whole rest of the section to be kind of uh, sketched out or adumbrated in this, in this way. Um, so what do we see? Just, just, just real briefly, we see a servant who acts wisely, one who astonishes many, on some level is marred beyond human semblance, yet in the, aton- in the end makes atonement or sprinkles the nations. I should comment here uh, that this passage follows a really interesting pattern. Uh, it sort of shares what will happen at 700 years, as, as Dave brought out, 700 years prior to Jesus saying this is what will happen, but it doesn't just give us this sort of uh, event-centered prophecy. It then says, this is what these things will mean. It's sort of prophetic doctrine more than it is sort of like this Nostradamus feeling 
uh, fire will rain from the sky. Okay, yeah, wow. And then, you know, a helicopter goes past, and I guess that was fire raining from the sky. Or, you know, something really weird and difficult to interpret. What we have here is, is a telling of events, a foretelling of events, and then saying this is exactly how you should interpret those events when they happen. Futuristic doctrine, prophetic doctrine. Isaiah is offering us the heart of events and the meaning of events 700 years before it finds its fulfillment, which should serve only to amaze, only to astound, and only to assure all the more what the death and resurrection of Jesus was. The overlooked servant, uh, Isaiah 53, 1-3. Who has believed what he's heard from us? Note the irony here. The last verse just ended with kings will shut their mouths because of him uh, for that which they didn't, uh, weren't told about they understand and that which they didn't hear beforehand they see. Uh, but here it's, oh, who's, who's actually gotten this? Who's believed what he's heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah's writing here from the perspective of kind of this preserved remnant of Israel, who in the end figures these things out, but they're being honest from the start and saying, yeah, I mean, who, who saw what, what happened and actually thought, wow, God's in that. This is the arm of the Lord being revealed before us. This is what we've always heard about. Who actually got it? Who looked at these events and clearly perceived God's action? If we needed any further convincing that the servant on display here isn't just Israel or some random person or Isaiah, but is Jesus himself, we'd need only to wrestle in with the phrase, he grew up before us like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. Without having time to go into it fully, this is a key picture in Isaiah. Uh, <clears throat> if, you've, if you've been a part of a church for any period of time, almost every year at Christmas, uh, somebody stands up and reads Isaiah 9, sort of, what is it, 6 and 7. Uh, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, this sort of prophetic ringing of this newborn child, Jesus, that will change the world. Um, and that's this, this word. He grew up before us like a young plant. That's, that's what Isaiah is pointing to, this Isaiah 9 child and son who will be given, that the government will be upon his shoulders. And he grew up before them uh, like a root out of dry ground. The same person that's pictured in Isaiah 9, by the time you read Isaiah 11, becomes this root of Jesse, this stump of David that sits on the throne and takes up the mantle. What we see here is Jesus being this servant. But if we would have seen him, I don't think we would have caught him because he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. That is, if you passed him on the street, you wouldn't be like, whoa, I have never seen someone like this. Surely this is someone God is at work in. We would have just sort of... And that was it. All gone. No form, no majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He's not this uh, twilight 
sparkling vampire that, you know, <gasps> it's not who he was. He was just a dude. Though he evokes a reaction from the nations eventually, he didn't stand heads above the rest. <laughs> no, he was, he was despised. And he was rejected. He was a man of sorrows. And he was acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. How can this be? This high and lofty one. This super high priest that's ready to sprinkle on behalf of the nations. Yet he was despised, rejected, esteemed not. He was overlooked, plain and simple. Realistically, if you would have walked past him, I think you would have thought he's a servant. Not one worthy of notice. Thus Isaiah says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. They saw that he was a man of sorrows, one acquainted with grief. I mean, think about it. If Dave had introduced me today to those of you that hadn't met me before and said, yeah, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm excited to have Andy here. I mean, he's kind of a man of sorrows and seems like real acquainted with grief and stuff. Um, I mean, you guys might have just got up and walked away. I mean, what does a person have to be like to be described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? What kinds of things have to be going on in their heart? I guess, why shouldn't they have thought these things? They thought as they despised him, and as they rejected him, they thought, geez, this guy's pitiful, eh? This guy's nothing. And they missed the most significant man in all of history. Isaiah fills out the meaning of these verses in 4 through 6, the suffering of the servant. You see, the people concluded, yikes, this guy must be real sorry. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. But what they missed was that he wasn't a man of grief and sorrow over his own heart and life. He wasn't depressed over himself. Isaiah 53, 4, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. What weighed this man down wasn't sorrow over his own sin. It wasn't grief over the longings of his own heart as he reflected on his own life. What grieved this man was sorrow over our sin. And what grieved him was our life. The high and lofty one walked the earth, beheld its pain, and he allowed it to affect him. He said, give that to me. I will carry that. I will be a man of sorrow on your behalf. And I will be acquainted with your griefs. What comfort. What comfort we should see from this. Yet, we esteemed him stricken. Which is to say, um, we thought he had some sort of mental issue. Some sort of severe problem that's wearing down his life. We esteemed him smitten. As in, smite Smite me, almighty oh smiter, Bruce Almighty cries out. They looked upon him and thought, wow, God must hate this man. To actually call somebody smitten by God? And we saw him as afflicted. I've never seen someone so pitiful, someone so mistreated. 
Yeesh. And maybe, maybe these descriptions make logical sense. Read verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. This is the heart of redemption right here. Substitution. See, this servant is wounded. He's crushed. He's chastised and he's striped. That is, and he's beat so severely, you can see the marks on and on. It wasn't a slap in the face that was red for a second. It was a wound from a whip that tore the flesh, striped. But not as the people overlooked and misjudged, wow, smitten by God. But no, for them, for us. Yet we esteemed him not. Verse 6 continues, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is an incredible one-sentence capsule of the gospel. If you've ever wondered, what's Christianity all about? If you've ever wondered, how could I just in one sentence display the heart of the Bible to a friend? I think this is a great candidate. Three things here. All we have gone astray, every one to his own way. And this verse really applies not to just Israel that Isaiah walked among, but to each and every person. We've turned, each and every one, to his own way. What way is that? The way of self. The way of self. Each and every person here, each and every one of you I'm looking at, myself included, on my own? Oh yeah, man, I'm, I'm living my own way. That's how it's done. And our culture glorifies it. It advertises it and it turns it into cute little phrases like uh, YOLO and look out for number one and follow your heart and just make yourself happy and do what you want. And everything around us says, just live for you. You're the center of your universe. You're the center of your life. You can do and be whatever you want to be because nothing matters but what you want. That's what the world tells us. It's what stares us in the face when we walk down campus and we see these advertisements, when we turn on the TV, when we open a magazine, when we listen to the news. Just be you. Live for you. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. It's right for Isaiah to call this exile, to be away from home to be away from how we're meant to live and who we're meant to be and why we exist. Isaiah describes these, uh, these things in different ways. He calls them transgressions, iniquities, and sins uh, throughout the passage. A transgression is to say, um, I know this is illegal, and I did it anyway. That's a transgression. And iniquity is to say, I know the Bible's calling me to this standard or uh, my moral compass says live as such, and I'm unequal to the task and I don't care. That's an iniquity. And a sin is a blanket term to call anything where you choose to live for yourself instead of for what the God's called you to live for. But I don't have to offer a list of sins or transgressions to try and convince you of what I'm saying. I don't have to say, have you ever stolen anything? And on and on and on. Because as its root, that's not the problem. Science loves to call us human beings And I love that. That's fine. I'm taking no issue with that. I would love it if we would also just call ourselves human worshipings. Because from the moment we wake up, 
to the moment we go to sleep every night, and actually oftentimes probably while we're sleeping in our dreams, we're treasuring, we're worshiping, we're pursuing something, we're living for something, we're making choices in light of something, and that's a display of worship. And the root is that each of us often lives for the, for the wrong thing, with something other than God at the center of our hearts and lives. First, we need to notice this is something we're all sitting under. All we like sheep have gone astray. Second, we need to notice that it's, it's God that takes action. See, the situation is so, di- so dire, so desperate, it requires God himself. All we like sheep have turned, uh, gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him. God stepped into the picture. It's not something we can fix on our own. Isaiah doesn't just need to say, well, I mean, maybe they just didn't get the rules. I mean, here's sort of like the 10 things you should and shouldn't do. I mean, just do that. Like, duh. That wouldn't have done anything. He doesn't need to just say, be like David. Live this example. We don't need more rules. We don't need better examples. We need somebody to step in on our behalf, which is the third thing we need to notice here. The servant bears not just our griefs and our sorrows, but our very iniquity our wrong worshipings, the root of the heart of our lives, and he bears it. And that's what we needed. The question all throughout Isaiah up to this point has been, how can God in his majestic holiness, this high and lofty one, return a people so low and desperate to himself? How can he do that? And this is the way God answers it. God steps into the scene and he offers a substitute on behalf of the people. What can happen that can bring about humanity's separation from God? Consider Isaiah 59 too. should be on the screen. But your iniquities, these sins or transgressions, whatever word you want to stick in there, have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Consider what sin can do. Consider its weight, its damage, its vastness. Sin separates you from God. You want to know why people hid their faces from Jesus, as we've read before? I reckon there's only, as I've thought about, only two kinds of people we hide our faces from. We hide our faces when we look at somebody uh, whose affliction or suffering or pain we just can't bear to think about, and we turn away. Or... We hide our faces from somebody who's living such a life we can't even reflect on what must be going on in them. They're so successful or their character is of such a way or such a stature that we can't deal with it. It seems to me Jesus did both of these things. I think something in his life let them know, I'm not like you. I walk among you. But this root of problem that you all bear, I don't bear. Because he was never separated from God. And God could stand to look at Jesus. And through his substitution, death, he can stand to look at us. To overcome such an obstacle, a separation from God, requires these two things. God to step in and take action, which we've seen. And the sending of someone to die in our place. To bear this punishment. To be wounded, pierced, crushed, chastised, striped on our behalf.
for our sin. And realistically, I think, I think as, as a people, just anybody, we're kind of hardwired to long for this and to desire this. Um, I spent about five minutes this morning just running through movies in my head that, that have this as their central theme. Uh, Braveheart, Gladiator, Dark Knight, Matrix, Harry Potter. Um, that's what came to my mind in the first few minutes. Those also happen to be some of my favorites. Um, but at the center of each of these stories is someone dying on behalf of another. So Harry faces Voldemort and yields up his life. And in a real sense, he dies and comes back to defeat the enemy. So uh, Maximus in The Gladiator uh, faces the emperor and dies to return Rome to its people. And as I was finishing this last night, uh, Catherine was walking around my wife with our three-and-a-half-month-old son, kind of bouncing, trying to get him to calm. He's, he's real kind of colicky, and he's extremely fussy. Uh, and she turned on the TV for some background noise um, going on. And what was on the TV? How to Train Your Dragon. Yeah, that's a good movie. And so as I was working on this, I kept glancing up at the screen. And you know what I noticed? That's the essential theme of How to Train Your Dragon. Not to make a mountain out of a molehill here, but what you have is a people afflicted by dragons, dragons that are enslaved to a master dragon that requires them uh, to offer these sacrifices and to steal and tear down others. And a boy, a little boy that has trained the dragon, thus how to train your dragon. And the two of them together yield up their lives to make atonement, to bring about the end of this enslavement that these dragons were under. Our culture longs for this. Each of our hearts longs for this. This is the central theme of so many things around us. Jesus suffered like no other. Not only did he die on the cross, but upon the cross, he faced not just the pain of the cross itself, but the punishment on our behalf. But Isaiah's not done. The silent servant, Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. See, he not only suffered, but he was silent to the slaughter. I don't know. There's something, there's something in me. I'll just, I'm just going to blame it on being an American, that when I'm oppressed and afflicted, I'm just ready to, like, fight to the death. Um, you know, I'm ready to be, like, bearing arms and, and going after. I've never owned a gun in my life. Don't get the wrong picture of me. But there's something in me that, like, even when I get a traffic ticket that I feel like is wrong, it's like I'm writing letters and I'm fighting this to the teeth. Uh, and, you know, somebody from the government, the minister is going to have to come and tell me, you know, you need to pay a ticket kind of thing. I'm, I'm going to fight it. And I know nothing about sheep. Heaps of Kiwis know heaps about sheep. Uh, so I have no clue what a sheep does on its way to the slaughter or what it does while it's being sheared. But here's what it doesn't do. It doesn't say, no, farmer, please don't kill me. I was good. I always ate what you gave me. And I didn't it's not protesting on its way to its death. In the truest sense, it may bleat, but it's silent to the slaughter. Read through the end of Matthew at some point in the next few days and just note the number of times that somebody looks at Jesus while he's being oppressed and facing this judgment and they say, aren't you going to give an account? Aren't you going to answer these questions? Aren't you going to offer a defense? These people are saying some extreme things about you. And if you don't give an account, I'm going to be forced to put you on a cross. Yet he opened not his mouth. 
silent to the slaughter. Verse 8 continues, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered? And this word considered is slightly lost on us in English, I think. At least it was lost on me. The, the truer word here should be something like who deeply meditated upon or contemplated these events as they happened and who understood God himself is doing this. Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of his people? Who is it that looked at him and saw anything other than, wow, God must hate that guy. Smite him, almighty smiter. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he'd done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. This, this, uh, this English is a bit awkward, so I'm just going to cite one of the commentaries I was reading, looking on this. Peter Gentry, and if you have an issue with this translation, you can take it up with him. Um, but he, he, he's, he's saying from the Dead Sea Scrolls, we should read this not as it's written here, but as he was assigned a grave with the wicked, but his tomb was with the rich. As in, when Jesus walked to the cross and was crucified between two other criminals, uh, he was assigned a grave. It was a mass grave, an unmarked grave. And if you went looking throughout Israel, you'd never find the two men crucified next to Jesus because their punishment continued to the grave. They were hurled into a pit and left there. That was part of it. But his tomb is with a rich man. See, Jesus on the cross before he dies, he cries out, it's finished. Or I've done it. It's done. So he may have walked to the cross to bear a penalty, but he bore it on the cross and he was buried more in light with his true standing. That is to say, we should look at this and say the sacrifice was enough. It worked. He's buried with a rich man, not in an unmarked grave. And then we see the exalted servant. What we see in these final verses, 10 through 12, is the heart of God and the heart of the servant in this all. What we're reading is way, way more than a future prediction. It isn't, behold, a series of events will take place. It's future doctrine. Behold, this is what God will do and how you're to interpret it. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, this righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I divide him a portion with the many. And divide the, he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors, yet bore the sin of many and makes intercession. We see a few things here about God himself. We see that this was God's will. Uh, in the translation that Michael read, it, it said something like, uh, it pleased the Lord to crush him. And we don't need to read this from some sadistic sort of, God went, <laughs> No. We should see this in light of what it is. It's a sacrifice. It's the one sacrifice in all of history that after it happened, God smiled because it did what it was meant to do. It pleased him. It had its effect. It was the will of the Lord. It was his design, and it worked. It brought about a true result. And we see also that 
In light of this, God offers reward to the servant. He divides him a portion and gives him spoils. We see here a few things about the heart of the servant. Consider these phrases. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. I think the plainest reading, the plainest reading of these verses isn't just that Jesus will have some sort of out-of-body experience from which he sees, but that new life, new life comes. He shall see and be satisfied. He shall prolong his days. See, not only is God pleased and satisfied with what happens, in the end, the servant will walk through affliction, wounding, piercing, crushing, uh, chastising, and striping and say it was worth it. And it was good. And it was right. Thirdly, we see things about the people whose sin and iniquity were born. It's an offering for guilt. It brings about righteousness, which we shouldn't take as just sort of like a clean slate. Everything is now, you know, fresh start, Jimmy, go for it. What it is is that it's, it, it provides them a right relationship with God and a means by which to maintain and move forward in that. Righteousness of life. On and on. And we see Jesus divides his reward and his spoils with them. But we're left with two questions, at least, or we should be anyway. Realistically, I've presented, I think, rather clearly who I think this servant is. But we have to ask the question, who is the servant? And if you're ready to conclude that it's someone other than Jesus, what does that look like in your life? This servant is one who stands before God on your behalf, who steps up to the plate, takes the punishment, and is satisfied in light of it. Righteousness, peace with God, a return from the exile of your heart and separation from God is what's at stake. And we have to get this question right. Who is this servant? Who is this one who can do this? And the second question I think we need to wrestle with is, who is the servant for? If we've kept track of the references here in Isaiah, we should have seen a few things. That these promises and this servant is not just for Israel. 52.15, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. He shall sprinkle many nations. And on and on. Uh, Sorry, I lost my page here. Uh, He's for the world. Not is it just for the few, but for the many. By his knowledge shall my servant, the righteous one, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall divide his spoils with the strong. And don't read that as like, well, I better hit the gym so I'm strong enough to get some spoils. We should read it like we, like if I were to say, hey, New Zealand is a country 4.2 million strong. The USA is a country 321 million strong. My car is about, I don't know, 50 horsepower strong. Uh, not quite very. It's, it's not a display of a person's character or strength. It's a display of the number. As in, he will divide his spoils with many strong, the numerous. The heart within this question, and that I'm hoping you're asking, isn't just who is this servant for, but is this servant for me? Did his offering of guilt include my transgression and sin and separation from God? Realistically, Everyone in this room can find themselves in these verses. 
Consider again verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's where everybody starts in the whole history of ever. But the deeper question is, how can I come to be found in the second half of verse 6? But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How do I move from this sheep that's gone my own way to this one who's had his iniquity dealt with? I want to let Isaiah have his say here. We may be stopping my little uh, (laughs) systematic walkthrough of chapter 53, but this section continues all the way through chapter 55. Let me just read the way God calls you to come back. Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love of David, the testimony of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end and at all points in between is that God asks you to come in faith. What does it require to dine at this table to come thirsty? He who has nothing, no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk and the richest of food without money and without price. God says, come and come by faith. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which will not satisfy you? YOLO, follow your heart. Just be yourself. Give it your best. Live your dreams. The world revolves around you. Yuck. Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? I reckon if I asked each one of you in a one-on-one situation that you felt safe with, and I said, okay, in the end, how would you like to leave the earth? That's the kindest way I can put that. How would you like to die? I reckon most of you would say, well, I'd like to be old, and I'd like to sort of have a calm passing, maybe with my family and, and true loved ones around, and I'd like to have the opportunity to reflect on my life a bit and share some last thoughts, some final words, maybe finish my memoirs, and then, you know, ah, uh, done. Realistically, that's, <laughs> sorry, that's so far-fetched. We can't count that at some point in our life, we're going to get the opportunity to say, was it worth it? We can't count on this point where we get to say, yes, the way that I lived my life, the way that I raised my kids, the way that I did my family, my career, my studies, my on and on, my my roommates, the way I did everything in my life, it was worth it. Isaiah cries out, why do you labor? Why do you spend your life for that which does not satisfy? Why don't you live for this one who's offered the finest of foods, without price and requiring nothing from you but faith. This is an ongoing invitation. Come. Come by faith. And this isn't just how your journey with Jesus or your Christian faith starts. It's how it continues. We never leave this point where we're returning in light of the cross to Jesus. 
So Christian, I ask you, are you satisfied? Are you delighting yourselves in the richest of food? Are you dining at his table and walking away full? What are you living for? Incline your ear, come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Father, I thank you for these verses. I thank you for these promises, this prophetic doctrine where we get to see not only 700 years before what happened to Jesus, to the T, but also what it means and how we should interpret that. Um, I pray you'd help us to wrestle with this in truth, that you'd help us to wrestle with this for ourselves, and that you'd work in each of our hearts and lives, that we might be ones who live in light of the suffering of the servant. Amen.